0: Welcome everyone to the Penn Primary Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kendall Williams. So as I mentioned at the end of our last podcast, we're gonna space things out a little bit over the summer because of everyone's schedule. But there's one topic I really wanted to get to over the summer, and that is some of the summer illnesses, particularly infectious diseases that we see that are more specific to the months of June through September or so. And so we're going to do that today with a particular focus on Lyme disease. And to do that, I invited two colleagues from the Division of Infectious Diseases to join us. Dr. Ann Norris has not been here before. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine with a focus on tick-borne illness. When I reached out to colleagues in the ID division about who, who's sort of your expert on tick-borne illness, they all said, Dr. Norris. So, Ann, thanks for coming to the podcast. And I also have the pleasure of having back Dr. Kathleen Degnan, who was here earlier to talk with us about COVID. She's an assistant professor of clinical medicine and the associate director of antimicrobial stewardship at HUP. Hi, Kathleen.
1: Hi Kendall, thanks so much for having me. So I'm gonna
0: actually start with just a, a general question because you know I we talk about summer fever And I like this term because, you know, we have a lot of these viral illnesses that we see in the winter and spring. And then in the summer, we're supposed to be relatively free of them, at least before COVID and all that. But And then sometimes patients do come in with a fever out of the blue that makes us think. And that's often sort of the bucket in which we would put Lyme disease. So Anne, let me just start with you and sort of when do you start thinking about Lyme disease?
2: Yeah. So what makes summer fever unique in my mind is a patient who has had more than a, a day or two of fever and and it's undifferentiated they are they have a fever, malaise, headache but no organ is complaining they don't have a, a UTI or a URI and we're just not sure what's going on we in the ID community like to call this doxycycline deficiency syndrome because So often, these patients turn out to have a tick-borne disease that is treatable with doxycycline. There are, of course, other causes, viral entities that cause fever as well.
0: So let's jump into Lyme. Kathleen, let's talk about Lyme generally first, Uh, ticks and all that, and how we get Lyme and where does it come from?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think of Lyme disease as a very common entity in certain parts of the country, depending on somebody's exposure. So we know that... Lyme disease is carried by a particular tick, something called the black-legged tick or Ixodes scapularis, which is present in a lot of the eastern U.S., but particularly in the northeast and upper Midwest. And so, you know, people going out of their homes into areas with grasses, tall grasses, brush, can come across these ticks that are often just hanging out at the end of grasses and leaves ready to hop onto any passers-by. And so, you know, that's really the risk is people being outdoors in these warmer months in areas where there are these particular ticks that can carry Lyme disease or Borrelia bordeaux-free. And then we also do so sometimes see in people who have not had a ton of outdoor exposures, but who have pets who have outdoor exposures and then bring them into the home and they jump onto the, the humans.
0: You know, with the weather becoming warmer in the winter in this area. I'm wondering if we're starting to see Lyme a little bit more in an extended season or in the winter. I know there's ticks throughout the throughout the year now. I know this from having dogs and doing a lot of walking in the woods myself. Has, has that been something that's been in the discussion?
1: Yeah, I'd say we've definitely been seeing that. And we had a discussion amongst our group. We've been seeing tick-borne illnesses more commonly than we have in the past because of global warming in these like colder traditionally colder months. I saw a case of anaplasmosis that somebody acquired right at the end of November, early December this past year. So it's definitely been an issue with the the like global warming phenomenon that we're seeing these tick-borne illnesses more year-round now.
0: So for as a, in a primary care community, probably the most common presentation of Lyme disease is going to be somebody that comes in with a a rash. And maybe, maybe some symptoms beyond that, but just the rash. Any pearls, Anne, in terms of how how we should think about this really early stage of Lyme?
2: Yeah. You know, there's this common impression that Lyme disease can do just about anything. And even though there are case reports of very unusual manifestations of Lyme, it's not syphilis. It's not the great pretender. It really has a fairly typical presentation and set of manifestations, and it's usually not the explanation for the nonspecific complaints of fatigue, diffuse pain, brain fog, stuff like that. You're right, Kendall, e-migrants, the rash of Lyme disease, is the most common manifestation of Lyme disease. So, you know, EM is characteristically a slowly enlarging red patch This is not a quarter size red mark on your skin. These things on average get to be at least eight inches in diameter over the course of a couple of days. It can have a central clearing. That's the bullseye effect, but it can just be a solid patch. It can have bruising. It can look kind of blue. Five percent of EM rashes have a blistering effect. It shouldn't be confused with hypersensitivity from the insect attachment, you know, if you see the tick on the skin and a big red patch around it, that's not e It's too soon for it to be e You don't see the rash of Lyme disease until at least a couple of days after the tick has fallen off. About 70% of people do have this EM rash, and about half of people also have the nonspecific fever, headache, chills, feel lousy.
0: And the rash doesn't always look like the targetoid lesion that we're expecting, right?
2: It can be confusing. It can, you know, it can look like cellulitis at first. It can look like poison ivy. It can, sometimes people confuse it with ringworm, you know, except ringworm, le- because it has that big circle, multiple big circles. But ringworm, you know, lasts for months. EM lasts for maybe seven to 10 days. It can look like urticaria, you know, for all those irregular patches on the skin. But again, urticaria is evanescent. You know, present for less than a day. EM lasts over days.
0: So you're also, as you said, a fair percentage of patients are also going to have some associated symptoms, but mm-hmm. let's, let's go past the phase where they have the rash. Let's say it's not recognized or not, and not treated. What happens then?
2: Yeah, this happens a lot, I think. Patients can develop early disseminated Lyme disease, and this is much more dramatic. These are the people that come in with the multiple EM lesions. You know, they look like a leopard. This is also when we see the cranial nerve palsies. In particular, you know, Lyme disease in the summer is certainly the most common cause of an isolated seventh cranial nerve palsy and is definitely the most common cause of bilateral seventh nerve palsies, but can also cause other cranial nerves to paralyze. I've seen people with sixth nerve palsy, people that couldn't swallow, people that had eighth eighth nerve manifestations. So it loves cranial nerves, but it can also affect other nerve roots. And so people can come in with other kinds of ridiculous symptoms. This is also the stage where we see lymphocytic meningitis and the one manifestation of Lyme disease that really actually can be fatal, which is cardiac Lyme disease. There have been something like 11 deaths in the United States from, from myocarditis and pericarditis from Lyme disease. These present sort of weeks to a month or two after early infection. So most of that stuff we see in the late summer and early fall.
0: And, and these people are not feeling that ill at that stage, right, they're not having summer fever, right, when they present with Bell's palsy.
2: They can, I mean, if they have lymphocytic meningitis, they're, they're sick as yeah. stink. But you're right, they can just, come, they can just start having heart block. They can just come in with a complete heart block and be perfectly well, or they can have a seventh palsy and nothing else. Of course, you're going to ask them. Did Did you have a a bullseye rash last month? But sometimes they have no recollection of anything like that, and they're otherwise well.
0: And they may not have had associated symptoms with their early, very early phase disease that you described, like the fatigue or feeling unexplained fever. Right? They may not have that.
2: Often they don't. Usually they don't.
0: Yeah. So if you get past that stage, or maybe you have no manifestations of that stage, right, mm-hmm. then you can get mm-hmm. into the later stages without it being detected at all. And what are those like?
2: Right. So, so there are really two big categories here. The, the majority of late Lyme disease is Lyme arthritis. And this is a very characteristic syndrome. It's, it is uh, large joint effusions, one joint at a time, typically the knee that just spontaneously appears. So you go to sleep with a normal knee and you wake up with a cantaloupe where your knee used to be. And it lasts for a couple of weeks and then it kind of goes away. It's not highly inflammatory. This does not look like rheumatoid arthritis. It's not symmetric. You don't have an elevated SED rate. It doesn't involve the small joints. But people typically have relapses. Maybe they come in with a, a big swollen elbow the next time or the other knee blew up. And this can go on literally for years. The other organ that manifests late Lyme disease is neurologic. We you can see a distal symmetric peripheral neuropathy that looks a lot like diabetes with numbness and tingling in a hand in a stocking glove distribution. There are very characteristic EMG and nerve conduction study findings, and and there's also you know you can have a mononeuritis multiplex where various peripheral nerves are getting picked off at different times.
0: So if somebody has sort of the, one of the large joint effusions that come and go, you know, mm-hmm. I think of crystalline disease, you know, as being the mm-hmm. uh, the only mm-hmm. other thing really, specific thing that will do that. So now I know that if I think of gout, I should probably be, especially if the uh, tap is negative, I should be thinking about Lyme.
2: Well, if you're doing a tap, send synovial fluid for Lyme PCR if you've thought of Lyme, because if the patient has not had antibiotics, it's a very good test. It's at least 80% of the time positive and you've, you know, secured the diagnosis.
0: Yeah. So we're going to, and, and we should talk about testing in a, in a few minutes. So, you know, my main thing is, especially in primary care, I, I suppose, you know, when I'm doing hospital based care as well, I just don't want to miss it, right? So, and I think that's always the, I, I probably, I'm I'm almost certain i probably missed one of these because I, I, I have not diagnosed Lyme that often. So just by the probabilities, I'm probably missing some, right? So I think that, it's you know, the It's not an a
2: diagnosis that much. You know, it's only the carditis that makes it into the hospital and maybe the meningitis. But the, you know, there's 9,000 cases of Lyme disease in 2019, and the majority of them were e-migrants.
0: And you had shared with me that you see a lot of Lyme. And so can you kind of characterize your patient population you're obviously probably getting a referral population but you know what are some of the experiences that people ever have i think this is going to be sort of practical for us primary care physicians so we don't miss anything other than what we've already talked about but some of the things that your patients have experienced
2: i see, I see a, a lot of patients referred for either referred by providers or referred themselves for consideration of Lyme disease you know a hundred a year easily and Two thirds of those patients have never met Borrelia burgdorferi in their life. They either had a false positive Lyme antibody test, or they looked up Lyme disease on the internet and it it seemed to match their symptoms. You know, Lyme does the things that we just described. Uh, You know, diagnosing Lyme disease, there's an algorithm for it. The Lyme antibody testing is actually pretty helpful. And so, the fun of Lyme disease is that third of patients who really do have either late Lyme disease or some complication from Lyme disease that that makes the Lyme conversation so interesting.
0: Let's talk about diagnosing it. You mentioned if you have a joint effusion to send PCR, but that's not how most of us are approaching it. The first thing we're going to do is send Lyme antibodies, right? Look for Lyme. Well, look look for Lyme antibodies.
2: I I would hope that most Lyme disease in the United States is getting diagnosed clinically. CDC expressly recommends against sending a Lyme antibody when you're seeing a patient with what you think is erythema migrans. More than half, 60% at least of patients with early Lyme disease have a negative Lyme antibody, and that can be really confusing. That can, you know, that false negativity can put you off the hunt, and even if the Lyme antibody test is positive, It doesn't prove that the current problem is related to Lyme disease because people can keep a positive Lyme antibody literally for years, decades, after they've been cured of Lyme disease. So if you're seeing someone with that big red patch and maybe some flu-like symptoms, start your doxycycline and don't send a Lyme antibody if you're seeing somebody with unexplained fever, it's definitely reasonable to send the Lyme antibody. A positive IgM would be helpful for sure, but be prepared for a negative Lyme antibody test and the patient still has Lyme disease.
0: What's the delay and between you know, infection? It can, it can take and... a
2: month, a month. So it's 30 days before the Lyme IgG will be positive. Patients that come in with the later manifestations, if you have someone that has their first, you know, has new cranial nerve palsy, new heart block, a new large joint effusion, approaching 100% of those patients will have a strongly positive line antibody test. So the test is super helpful in late, later stage disease. It's just not helpful for the early patients.
0: So we should have treated them by the time. You yeah. Know, based on their clinical manifestations, I mean, <laughs> right. if somebody comes in with bilateral Bell's palsy, for instance, you know that in the summer that you know you should probably treat them and then send off the studies. So, and there are false positives as well, or or people who have had, previously had Lyme disease been treated are still positive and now presenting with new symptoms that may be Lyme. So you have those two scenarios, right?
2: Yes, there are a lot of there, the IGM test in particular is commonly falsely positive, and we're moving away from even doing IgM testing because of that. The screening test can also be falsely positive. Those low-level positive ELISA tests can also be falsely positive, which is why CDSO strongly endorses you know, a confirmatory test, a two-tier strategy. So there are both false positive and false negative tests with Lyme disease. You have to know when to apply the testing strategy.
0: So and at our lab, at Penn Lab or even maybe Quest or LabCorp, when we send off for Lyme antibody, are they doing the two-stage testing without even us ordering yeah.
2: it? Yeah. So they they are. They should be. They should. Any good lab will, be, will do that. Penn Lab definitely does that. And the algorithm did change recently. CDC made way for the use of alternative antibody tests rather than a Western blot as the second or confirmatory test, which is really a welcome change. It can be run simultaneously. So it comes back sooner or in sequence, waiting for the screen to be positive. The second test is faster, cheaper, and far less confusing than the Western blot test because it's a yes or a no. And if it's a no, they don't have Lyme disease or the test is negative. And if it's yes, then your test has been confirmed as positive. It takes a little time to get used to it because everybody's used to seeing the Western blots.
1: And that's what I was going to say. And I've definitely had patients come in with like a report out of their Western blot that was just sent by people erroneously like not even doing the initial positive mm-hmm. Eliza, and I think that's very confusing to patients and to providers who aren't used to looking at Lyme testing to see this Western blot with like a couple antibodies being positive, but they never had the initial screen.
2: Yeah, I always say CDC, again, recommends against that strategy. Don't send the Cadillac test because you just want to get the answer faster without doing the screening test. I always say that, you know, You want to confirm that you actually have antibody that might be Lyme disease antibody, a substantial amount of that before you characterize the shape and size of those antibodies by doing the Western blot. There's such a high risk of false positivity and a couple of bands here and there, and patients are very uncomfortable with a couple of bands. What does that mean? Does that mean I have a little bit of Lyme disease? And, and it does not there's a lot of cross reactivity with other organisms
0: so as in all things i think same thing with rheumatological tests don't send it unless you you have a real clear question that you're seeking to answer
2: that is so true
0: so let's talk about treatment you know folks that are early on can be treated with doxycycline for 10 days or so usually po is that how you do it
2: yeah, so the Lyme treatment has gotten simpler. With the accumulation of good comparative data over time, the recommendations have moved toward shorter courses and largely oral regimens. So instead of the fourteen to twenty-one days that we all were accustomed to, the Lyme Guideline published in twenty nineteen endorses just ten days of doxycycline or fourteen days of amoxicillin or cefiroxines for early Lyme disease. And then For the early disseminated Lyme disease, you can also use oral therapy. There are a number of studies in Europe comparing ceftriaxone and doxycycline for neurologic Lyme disease that have been shown to be equivalent with no difference in outcomes and obviously fewer side effects. A lot of times patients with what we think might be bacterial meningitis or complete heart block get admitted to the hospital and started on ceftriaxone because, you know, we're worried and we want to cover broadly. And that's totally reasonable. But once you've secured your diagnosis you can switch to doxycycline for those
0: patients. So there's very few circumstances in which somebody's going home with a PICC line being treated for Lyme disease. I've had patients come in to see me who have had PICC lines, and I always think, hmm, you know, that's yeah. that's probably something that was being treated inappropriately. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I see a lot of that. <laughs> I guess you do. Well, you know... We kind of uh, all do. ID docs really see a lot of that. Yeah, we'll get to that. In a, uh, hopefully, we'll get to that later. But I, I wanted to talk about the other bacteria and other diseases that are associated with the tick bite that can be just as bad that can co-infect if not worse than lyme disease itself so you know we know of three of them or i know of three of them anaplasmosis ehrlichiosis and babesiosis all of which seem to be more common kathleen you said you saw a patient with anaplasmosis how how do you how do you know somebody has anaplasmosis or why do you think about it what leads you to think about it in a in any patient, one that has Lyme disease or not?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Kendall, and I do more inpatient medicine, so I see definitely less Lyme and have seen occasional cases, although they're not common by any means, but we see occasional cases each year of anaplasmosis. Less commonly are Lickia in this area, although I know there was a recent case that we saw and then babesiosis, and I think in general how I think about it is similar to what Ann said, where you have a patient with a febrile illness and not having like another organ system complaint, You've sort of like taken off your list of your differential sort of symptoms of UTI, pneumonia, cellulitis, things like that. So somebody coming in with a febrile illness who potentially has epidemiologic exposures, like they're active outdoors in an area where you can get one of these diseases commonly in the spring or summer, although, as we said, sort of we're seeing creep into occasionally even the winter months with global warming. And then no other clear alternative explanation for the fever and then some lab abnormalities can also really make you think more about these. So with anaplasma and ehrlichia, commonly you'll see leukopenia and thrombocytopenia. And then with babesia, you'll see, or you should see, some component of anemia and some component of hemolysis. It causes a hemolytic anemia. So I think of it in patients coming in with a fever, potential tick exposure from outdoor activity without another clear explanation, and then with consistent labs like cytopenias, and then you can get some mild elevations in, in liver transaminases.
0: I know that Lyme can affect the liver and can cause some LFT abnormalities, but mostly when I think about LFT abnormalities, I think about anaplasma. Is that how you think about it as well.
1: I haven't seen usually too much LFT elevation in Lyme, and, but you can certainly see it with Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, and even with Babesia.
2: Yeah, you, you actually, Kendall, you're right. You, if you see a transaminitis in a patient with Lyme disease, that's not unusual. And that doesn't make me think about these other organisms. I think about Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Babesia when people remain sick. Two days into their doxycycline, they're still having a fever. They're extra sick. They just are more sick than your average line bear, if you will, or if they have the CBC abnormalities that Kathleen mentioned, because these are intracellular pathogens that either you know attack platelets and white
0: cells or attack your red cells. How do you diagnose them?
1: Yeah. So in terms of diagnosis, you could. I even see them on a blood smear. So, Anaplasma you can see in neutrophils. Ehrlichia you can see the morulae in monocytes. And then Babesia is primarily diagnosed with blood smear. So you'll see them inside of red blood cells. And so we recommend that people send a blood parasite smear. Definitely the. The easiest thing to see would be Babesia, just because the blood parasite smears focus on the red blood cells. And with the like fewer neutrophils and monocytes that you would see on those smears, you might miss Anaplasma or Ehrlichia. So I also, usually in addition to sending a, a blood parasite smear, would send PCR testing from the blood for Anaplasma and Ehrlichia. You can send also for a PCR testing for Babesia, and and I I send that as well. But if you have a good microbiologist and parasitologist, you should be able to see Babesia on a blood smear.
0: And it's really the same test that you're doing to check if you're concerned about malaria, right? Babesiosis? Yes.
1: Yeah, Definitely. You're totally correct, Kendall. You, like, it's the same thing that you would order. So I think that's one common mistake I sometimes to see in the hospital is people ordering just for like a peripheral blood smear, which will be made in the lab and then somebody has to come take a look at it. And that's what often the hematologists are looking at. But you really want to order for blood parasite smear. And that's where they'll, they'll do the thick and thin smear and look for intraerythrocytic parasites. And some people will say or, or joke that the only way you can really differentiate between Babesia and malaria is by taking a travel history. And so if somebody hasn't left the U.S. when you're seeing intra-earth blood parasites, that should be Babesia.
0: Yeah, I saw a patient who was an F U O that was transferred down to Presbyterian, where I was working at the time, from New Jersey, and that ended up being the diagnosis was babesiosis, and it's just not something we see every day. But I I think that since that, and that might have been five or ten years ago, you know, I was seeing it more commonly. Do do you see it more commonly than you used to, and do you see it more commonly? Oh, babesiosis. yeah.
2: It, it, it used to be something that we only saw, like, in the New England states, Martha's Vineyard up there. Then we started seeing it in New Jersey and seeing it in Pennsylvania. That You know, there were six cases of babesiosis in Pennsylvania in 2010, and there were 68 cases in 2019. So it's not a ton compared to Lyme disease, but but we're definitely you know, it's not the exceptional
1: event anymore.
0: Yeah. I, I've heard cases from time to time. It's been, it's a thing. So it's a thing to look out for.
1: So, as Anne said, you can see co-infections because it's the same ticks that Lyme and, and anaplasma that transmit Babesia. And so, as Anne said, if you're seeing somebody who's not improving with doxycycline, since it's a, a different treatment, definitely think about Babesia.
0: So before we leave tick-borne illness, I just want to kind of give you an opportunity to, you know, tell us some pearls or mistakes you see primary care physicians make that we can avoid. And I mean, you're getting, you have this large referral population. Is there anything in addition to what you've said that you want to tell us?
2: Sure. I have a, I have a couple thoughts. One, we already said, don't send a Lyme antibody test unless you have a, a true reasonable suspicion for Lyme disease, not just someone who's achy, tired, and can't think right. There are five large placebo-controlled randomized studies showing that treatment for Lyme disease beyond the recommended CDC regimens confers no benefit to patients with Lyme disease. So the people that got the real intravenous antibiotics versus the sterile saline or the real doxycycline or other antibiotics instead of the pink pills in the long run felt no better. So People often can feel yucky after Lyme disease. It it can be a very acutely disabling illness and I am holding hands with a couple of people every fall, encouraging them that they are going to get all the way better, but that more antibiotics are not going to make that happen faster. I'd also just be careful with the Lyme testing that's available. There are a lot of marketed tests out there that have really lousy performance characteristics and don't really correlate with the presence or absence of infection. So, you know, there are very few times when you should do a PCR test, and it's really just restricted to synovial fluid, and, you know, blood cultures for Lyme disease are not a thing yet. They're, they're not FDA approved. They haven't been proven to be useful. Stick with the Lyme serology.
0: So, you know, we, we're going to do another podcast in the future on sort of the after effects of... Infectious disease, because I think there is a seems to be some form of pathway that either COVID or EBV or Lyme leads people to feel lousy for the longer term. And we need to talk about that. But there doesn't seem to be anything, as you're saying, to justify the idea of chronic Lyme infection, right?
2: Well, yeah. In fact, the the words chronic Lyme infection send chills down my spine. (laughs) There are late Lyme disease manifestations that are a consequence of true infection, and we talked about them. There is probably a syndrome of post-treatment Lyme disease illness where patients have persistent symptoms after recovery from Lyme disease. There's a guy at Hopkins that has been studying this a lot, John Alcott, and has shown that at the end of a year, those patients are no more ill than the general population, keeping in mind that 10 to 15 percent of the general population feels unwell in the ways that I've described.
0: So the other thing to talk about, I think, during the summer are the enteroviruses because, you know, we have this transition that occurs from sort of the flu and URI-type viruses. I suppose the URI-type viruses continue through the summer, but there's definitely a transition into what I would think of as sort of the enteroviral phase where you have very specific viruses causing very specific illnesses, almost all of which occurred in the summer and early fall. So Anne, let's talk a little bit about the enteroviruses. What are some of the, the pointers that you wanna talk about relative to you know, Coxsackie virus, echovirus, and so forth?
2: In the winter, you're right, Kendall, we have these circulating respiratory viruses that everybody knows about. They come back in your respiratory panel. And for unclear reasons, in the summer, these make way for the emergence of the enteroviral infections, which really are occurring year-round, but in temperate climates, occur more commonly in the summer and fall. Most enteroviral infections actually are completely asymptomatic. Again, result only in an undifferentiated febrile illness. They are a common cause of the common cold in the summer, more common than rhinovirus, for instance, and you know have a little bit more of a GI component than, than the rhinoviruses, coronaviruses do. But enteroviruses, are also the major cause of viral meningitis in the summer. In fact, when you're seeing someone with what we used to call aseptic meningitis in the summer, enterovirus should be very high on your list. Of course, just plugging Lyme disease, if there's a cranial nerve palsy or a radiculitis or a history of a rash, think of Lyme disease in that situation. There are you know, other enterovirus Strains that are responsible, for instance, for hand, foot, and mouth disease, coxsackie, pleurisy, pericarditis. And, you know, there is this emergence of this acute flaccid myelitis in children who've had enteroviruses, different strains of enteroviruses that, you know, is under intense study right now. Not tons of cases, but something that is emerging that was kind of lame.
0: Learning about enteroviruses was really helpful because they have distinct syndromes, particularly the aseptic meningitis. I remember seeing a statistic as a resident that, I don't know, it was like 90% of aseptic meningitis, what we we used to call aseptic meningitis is due to enteroviruses, and 90% of that occurred during the summer and fall. So it was basically, you know, a June through September phenomenon was to see a viral meningitis.
2: Yeah, and to discharge them from the emergency room, someone with meningitis. You know, it took a while to get comfortable doing that.
0: Yeah. So, Kathleen, I'm going to throw this next subject to you, but I, before I want to do this, I want to set it up. So, you know, a few years ago, we moved into this house, and it had a pool, but it had a, a surface problem. There was a lot of cracks in it, and my kids were really small, so we decided to just leave it covered. So, for two or three years, we left left it covered, and then I was I was made aware of the risk of mosquitoes and began to recognize that I had this huge vat of water in my backyard that was probably a mosquito breeding gown for the whole neighborhood, which is what led me to accelerate my plans to get it opened. But one of the things that was keeping me up at night was West Nile virus. And we're seeing more of that now, and it's mosquito born and so forth. What can you tell us about that, and how worried should we be about it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's interesting. We just got a email maybe last week for like a health advisory from the state that Pennsylvania is seeing its first West Nile virus positive mosquito pools and saw them in the counties of Montgomery, Philadelphia, Bucks and Cumberland. And so it's definitely started off. The season started off and it's Something to certainly be aware of and definitely a motivator for me to wear deep mosquito repellent when going out when there's a lot of mosquitoes in the evenings. I think, as you said, Kendall, like, it's important for people to try to like, clear standing water off of their property and just be more cognizant of mosquitoes when they're outdoors because of the, the risk of West Nile virus. And we, we see a few cases each year in the hospital, and they can be quite serious if people develop the, the neuroinvasive disease. Not everyone, fortunately, will develop that, but you know people can develop the abrupt fevers, headaches, myalgias, Things like that, and, and a lot of those people also get rashes, and then a smaller percentage of people will go on to the neuroinvasive disease, which is the really feared complication of West Nile virus.
0: So, is uh, a meningoencephalitis is that a good way to describe it, or is it more than that?
1: No, it is a meningoencephalitis. I think there are people that can have like a pure meningitis. And reportedly, that happens more often in children than the encephalitis is more common in older the older age group, and people can get all sorts of neurologic manifestations, things like flaccid paralysis and definitely some like gait abnormalities. And it can be like, you know, mild self-limited, but some people can develop a significant encephalopathy, coma, and, and unfortunately even death. So it can be quite severe and more severe. And it's like typically like the elderly and immunocompromised populations.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess it was a good idea for me to get my pool. Now it's a lovely salt pool, and there are no mosquitoes, and I've noticed a big difference. And I hope i and thankfully, I didn't hear of any cases of West Nile virus among my neighbors. So I got through that period, but it was, it was risky. So, but you know, before we close out, are there any other summer fevers we should worry about that we haven't talked about? You'd have to consider—I don't know if you've ever
2: heard of this—COVID. You definitely we definitely have to keep that on our radar and not get distracted by all these potentially more interesting diseases. i you know, I always look for the complaining organ and uh, you know there's nothing specific about summer with complaining organs other than people are outside, and so you know they're more prone to cellulitis and skin injury and and the arbovirus infections and tick-borne virus infections that we've talked about.
0: I had a patient earlier this week that came in and was multiple COVID negative, but had URI symptoms and a diarrheal syndrome. And now now that you mentioned it, and I, I think that he probably had a, has an enterovirus, that would be a reasonable next option. I, I love these PCR tests where you get multiple. I mean, they're just like magic. I mean, it's just unbelievable to be able to identify a specific virus. It's something we've never had before. I'm sure you as infectious disease physicians love it as much as I do.
1: Kathleen, do you love it? Sometimes. No, it is very cool.
0: (laughs) We're beginning to at least be able to distinguish different types of Mm -hmm. manifestations of specific viruses, whereas before we would group them globally. And I find that interesting
2: i think the most interesting thing is the number of times that the only thing we isolate is rhinovirus and people are really sick you know it turns out that that common cold virus doesn't just it's not just serious because it makes your asthma worse it and and you miss work it can really make people sick
0: i have found a newfound respect for metanumovirus really causes i've seen a couple of quite ill people with that well kathleen and ann thank you so much for joining us on the penn primary care podcast this is very topical we're I I mean, I'm getting calls every day about these types of issues, so I I hope it was as helpful for the Penn Primary Care community as it was for me. And we're going to have you back later to talk about more infectious things when the season demands. Thank you all. Please join us again next time. Please note
2: that this podcast is for educational purposes only. For specific questions, please contact your physician, and if an emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.